good king and uh, the reforms that Josiah did. Um, don't know if Jeremiah had a hand in, in encouraging that or what have you, but there were some things that went on, a little bit of reforms in the land of Judah. Um, had a lot of um, contemporaries during this time. First part of his ministry um, was uh, Zephaniah was overlapped there. The last part of his ministry um, overlapped with uh, um, Habakkuk, Daniel, Ezekiel. Um, all of those were, were contemporary with uh, Jeremiah's ministry. A um, lot of things going on around during that time. See, anybody that's history or literature buff, um, Greece was really starting to come into its own as far as the culture. Um, literature people, Sappho, uh, Sappho, how we pronounce it, poetess. Uh, um, for those who are literature people, history people, um, if you know, I don't even know how to pronounce it, Thales, Thales was the first wise sage of, of Greece. He's the one that, that um, um, a lot of non-Christians will, will tout as the one who first started suggesting the world is round. Uh, of course, we have it in Scripture written down prior to where he, he existed, but um, that doesn't count. So, um, and then some of you who aren't buffs on that stuff, you may have heard of Aesop, Aesop's Fables. He was during this time. Um, big cultural time in, in Greece, and that's what's going on during the time of Jeremiah and the, and the decline of Judah. Um, you have, uh, he's called the weeping prophet, um, not because he was some big sissy. Um, his, his prophecies weren't just to Judah, um, he's in chapter 1, verse 5, it talks about him being a prophet to the nations, and he prophesied, prophesied the destruction and judgment of God upon all the nations, not just Judah, but all those around them. Israel's been gone for about 100 years when Jeremiah comes on the scene. It's already been taken away by Assyria, um, uh, but Judah has been left, and there's been this steady decline, and uh, that's when we come to this point in Jeremiah um, and in chapter 1. In chapter 1 you have um, his calling, the call of man. Um, it says in verses 4 and 5 it talks about his being formed in the womb, being prepared for the very ministry that God had him for from, from before he was born. Um, Paul says the same thing about himself in Galatians chapter 1. He says the exact, almost the exact same words about being formed in the womb and prepared. God prepared him through his life for the ministry that he had. Uh, Jesus says something similar about the disciples in John chapter 15, talking about them, how he's prepared them. And before they'd, they'd ever gotten to that point, and, and before they were ever part of his ministry, that he'd been working in their lives and preparing them for what they were doing. And then Paul again in 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 2, he talks about the church. And he says, we were chosen before the beginning. And we were called. And we all have this calling that God has prepared for us. God has a place for each and every one of us. We talked uh, last week, um, Darla said that we talked about uh, why we study the New Testament is for an example for us. And this is an example because we are all called uh, for some purpose. God, God has a reason 
and a purpose for every one of us. And, uh, um, you know, he, he looks down and he, he's, he's got it all planned out. And he says, you know, I got a place for Joe and he's, he's going to fit in right here. And, and, and a place for, for um, Josh and he's right here. And, and a place for all these different people. And they fit in God's plan. So he's got things worked out and we don't always see that. So there's a calling for each of us. Um, also in this first chapter, uh, Jeremiah gives an objection. And he starts saying, you know, I'm, I'm young. I'm too young. You can't possibly use me. I'm just a child. Who's going to listen to me? And um, honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, his objections, a lot of people, God doesn't rebuke him here. Um, it's healthy to understand our own limitations, um, to understand that what's going to happen and, and what God's going to do is coming from him and not just from us. Um, if he calls us because I'm just this great speaker, uh, this great worker, and, and, and I'm very charismatic, and then I, I want to focus on, look how good I am instead of how good he is. Um, our fears about our weaknesses can debilitate us. But God's word really builds us up. And he does that in, in uh, verses 8 and 9. He basically tells um, Jeremiah, he says, you will be faithful. And the whole book of Jeremiah is this book of, faith, of his faithfulness to God and what he's called him to do. Because what he's calling him to do is not going to be very popular. He's telling everybody, God is going to judge you. You people are wicked and evil. The Jews, the Moabites, the Edomites, all the nations around them. And he's saying, God's going to judge you. Every one of you turned your back on God and judgment is coming. He's not the kind of guy you want to invite to a party. Okay? He's just going to, he's just, oh, we're, we're doomed. It's over. You know. And so, so he, he, he makes these objections, but, but he realizes that, you know, God, God b- builds him up. He lifts him up. Um, uh, when we get to the point of saying, no, you know, I'm not worthy, then God can say, no, but I am. And he can use you. And so he makes this objection, very short objection in here. Then he gives him a vision in chapter 1. Uh, verse 11, he starts showing him things, and, uh, which is very important right off the bat as he calls him. Um, this vision that he gives him kind of uh, puts a stamp and says, you know, uh, a prophet wasn't just someone that's going to take the word of God and say, you sinner, repent. He needs, to, he needs to see with eyes that are a little bit different than everybody else. He needs to see with the eyes of God. He needs to see things that... Uh, um, everybody else isn't seen. If he's doing what everybody else is doing, his path would be a little bit different. And so he sees uh, a prophet is someone who's sort of all in, so to speak. He sees with eyes that, that, that aren't natural, and he speaks with words that aren't natural. He uses his mind in ways to take the word of God and give it to people so that they can understand it. And he gives them a vision. There were three things that I noticed and pulled out. One was in, chap- in verse 11. He talks about a rod which is always, almost always in Scripture talking about judgment. Um, it's used uh, throughout Scripture. It talks about Assyria being a rod to Israel. It talks about different nations that were used to 
to help in instrumenting God's judgment upon his people. He talks about using them as a rod. And it talks about Jesus when he returns to earth being a rod. In fact, it, in the same passage, it talks about the almond tree. And it says the same thing in Revelation about Jesus and, and, and being a rod and, and talking about the almond tree. Almond tree is the first tree that blossoms and blooms. The Hebrew word for it means hasty. It comes fast. It comes quickly. And when, when Christ comes back to earth, his judgment, um, everything's going to unfold quickly, fast. And it's talking about this here as Jeremiah is telling the, the, uh, the Jews, those of Judah, he's saying, Your judge, my judgment is coming fast. Time is short. It's going to happen. And he gave one other um, um, part of this vision, which I honestly had to look up because I, I was struggling. And I looked at, at some different uh, gentlemen um, that were sharing. And the only one that made sense to me was he was talking about the boiling pot. And he said, um, one gentleman said, the boiling pot, they're looking to the north, that's where their judgment is coming. He tells them that's where the judgment's coming from, out of the north. And the boiling pot was this, this fixture of activity. A lot of things happening. But it, when it comes to the point of this judgment coming, it has no impact. It's like this pot of boiling water. What happens to the water as it's boiling? It's just gone. All that activity and nothing happens. And he uses that to say, y'all are busy. You're, you're saying you're religious but it's all just words and, and actions. There's no reality to it. And so he gives them this, judge, this uh, vision, and then he finishes up chapter 1, and he talks about his protection. Um, I've already mentioned that Jeremiah said he's not going to be a popular person with what he's saying. And a lot of times when God calls you to do something, there are things that you may be saying and doing in the name of God that may not be popular. Um, as soon as I was reading this, he says, don't worry, because I'm in control. They may try to say things to you and do things to you, but I'm in control. And Jeremiah had a very long ministry of, of proclaiming God's word and, and the judgment of God that was coming. And he was even in prison for periods of time. But God still protected him. And it really reminds me, I've shared on numerous occasions, a lot of you know me, share on numerous occasions about our trip to Israel and when we decided this is what we're going to do and attacks just flooded us and sometimes it felt overwhelming um, we had friends and family that were just very abusive telling us how bad of parents we were um, how dangerous this was we shouldn't take our children into this we had Christian friends who said are you sure this is what you need to be doing aren't you afraid we had Christian counselors who said, um, um, that's a lot of money that you're going to need to do this. What's your plan B? And some of those were just penetrating to us. We had a lot of good counselors. Uh, Dave, Jim, some others came alongside us and gave us some good words of advice during this time. And it was a real blessing and encouraged us a lot. But you're going to be attacked when you're stepping out and doing something for God. The enemy doesn't want that to continue. So 
uh, first chapter of the call of man. Um, and these things happen, his appointment, his objection, his vision, his protection. The second chapter um, refer, I called the fall of man. And he starts out on a good note. And God starts through Jeremiah, starts talking about the good old days. He talks about Israel's kindness and their love and their holiness and their, their seeking after God. And he's talking about these days when they came out of Egypt and the wandering and, and going in the land. And I'm thinking, that's not the stories I remember. I mean, no disrespect intended to God, but I was thinking, does he not remember the golden calf? Does he not remember all the objections? And, oh, it would be better for us back in, in Egypt, in slavery. Oh, we have nothing to drink, and God gives them water. Oh, we have nothing to eat, and God gives them bread from heaven. Oh, but, it, but it's, it's not meat. We need meat. And God rains down pheasant or quail or something that tastes like chicken. I don't know what it was. Um, and, uh, um, and just this complain after complain after complain. And God here says, I remember your kindness and your love and your holiness because their attitudes and their hearts, if you go back and read through the stories, when God would point it out, whether there was a harsh judgment from God or not, their hearts were, oh, I've sinned. I did wrong. God, forgive me. And over and over again through Scripture, through Old Testament, through the Pentateuch, the first five books, through Judges, through um, the historical books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you see them saying, we promise we'll do much better. We promise we will, we will obey. And there was this heart, true heart repentance, not just this, ugh, I got caught. Okay, I'll work on that. There was this true repentance, and that's what God sees. And that's what he remembers in their life. Um, and, and we do a lot of the same, I think. Um, but the question is, what is our response when God points that out to us? When we fall and falter, um, do we turn in repentance and say, God, I messed up. Because that's what God's looking for, is that real repentant heart. Then he moves in and talks, the greatest part of the, the uh, chapter is dealing with the, where they're at right now, the present, what their heart is like. And um, um, pastor calls it the nasty now and now, where they're at, and, and it's not a pleasant place. It talks about their vanity. They're not seeking God anymore. They're seeking about things that don't matter. It says in, in verse 8, it talks about their leaders don't know God. It talks about, um, I wrote a couple of them down. It talks about the blessings that God has poured out on them because he loves them, how they've turned them into abominations. It, it talks about how instead of turning to God in their time of need, they keep turning to these other nations. And saying, come save us. We'll give you money. Come help us out. We're having trouble with them. Would you come help us? And their whole history is, they get help with them. And then they become the problem. 
So they turn to another nation. They say, well, you help us because we're having trouble with these guys now. And as soon as they help us, they, they start having trouble with that, those guys. And over and over again, instead of turning to God, they keep turning to nations. And then they had this, over, the overwhelming emphasis of this chapter is the idolatry. They still had God. They still wanted to keep God, but they wanted to add all these other gods. And, and, and they were adding on to um, the worship of Jehovah by taking all these other gods and saying, we're going to include this one also. And it was almost like a contest because every city had to have their own additional God that no other city had. And they were putting all these, these worship places all over the country. And they were worshiping these things and adding. They were supposed to be the witnesses, the holiness that was theirs, to be a light for, Je- for the nations, for Jehovah. And they were adding things to it and then going out and telling these nations, look, you can add Jehovah to your worship. And instead of drawing people to Jehovah, they were sealing their fate and sending them to hell. Um, this, the, the sin, they came to a point where they're saying, you know, we're not doing that. Look, Josiah's done these reforms. We've gotten rid of Baal. We're doing good. The high places have been removed. And in the passage it says, in fact, I want to look at that. Sorry, I usually have my glasses here. Um, Verse 23. How can you not say I'm not polluted? I've not gone after Baal. See thy way in the valley. Know what you have done? Um, the valley. Does anybody have something different than just the valley in their scripture? Literally is the valley of Hinnom. It's the place of baby sacrifice. Said so these places still stand. You can't hide and say we're, we're not worshiping other gods. It's standing out. It's glaring out and saying, they're there. You can't hide that. And so they would take that and then they would object and they'd say, yeah, but have we really sinned? I mean, we're, we're doing better. I mean, we did get rid of those high places, right? We're doing better. Um, there was no more repentance. There was this blatant idolatry that the sin they couldn't even see anymore. They were totally immune to their sin. Um, The evidence was everywhere, but the sin had no effect. There was no guilt. Um, Verse 35 says, Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee, because thou say, I have not sinned. Um, ch- chapter 3 verse 3 says therefore the showers have been withholding and there have been no latter rain and now have a whore's forehead you refuse to be ashamed a prostitute's forehead when we sin 
and it's found out, what happens? We get a little embarrassed. We turn red. The prostitute, the open one, you're doing wrong. Oh, well, okay. Nothing. No shame in what they're doing anymore. No repentance. They're no longer turning back to God. He says, this is a problem. You need to repent now. Um, several of these things, when I think about the example here, I think several of these things, as far as us in a church, is very similar. Um, a couple years ago, I was in a class here on Wednesday night for evangelism, and the teacher then asked us to go to our workplace and ask them, have you ever witnessed for Jesus? Well, okay, I thought, uh, most of you know me. I work at International Board of Jewish Missions, okay? So I thought, well, I'll go to some of the staff people and see what they say. And I went to, I remember going to somebody really clear in my mind, and I started, and I asked this question, and they said, oh, yeah, I do that all the time. I said, well, what do you do? They said, well, I go and I take my neighbor's cookies and I tell them they should be in church. Um, as I asked her to explain more about what she does and how she witnesses to Jesus, there was no mention of Jesus. She's like, I'm showing them the love of Jesus. And I feel like as a church whole, not just Stuart Heights, but we're loving people straight to hell. We're not telling them what they need to be told. Are we the same as the Jewish people? Yeah. We're giving them just enough Jesus that they're inoculated. They know of, but they don't know him. I think that's a problem. Um, another one is the whole sin thing. Um, we get it so much around us that we become immune. Um, I was talking to, uh, a few years back, I was talking to a very active member in the church, and, and I was questioning um, the... the um, relationship aspect and, and if that's hindered by the fact that we I, I don't even know how it got on this subject but we start talking about cable and what it does is it harmful to the family is it harmful to us and uh, I was asking their opinion because I thought you know this is someone that's very in my mind very holy wise person I said oh yeah I have cable oh okay and you don't see that as a problem oh no 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 I said well where do you subscribe he goes oh I don't subscribe what? They said, no, I figure as long as it's on my property or in the air, it's mine to, it's just as equally mine as it is theirs. You're pirating cable and you don't see that as wrong? I was stunned. But do we do that? Do we hear so much? Maybe we all don't pirate cable. But do we hear so much that it's no longer offensive to us 
It's okay. We'll put up with it because everybody's doing it. And that's where they were. They were becoming active in it, the whole nation, because it was just so rampant. And they became immune. It no longer affected them. And I worry about that in our church, in our, amongst people that I know and love. All right, enough negative. Let's talk about, just briefly, the love for man. This is, um, this is a really important part. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, <clears throat> he says in verse 1, They say, If a man put away his wife, and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. Again and again, the Jewish people turned away from God. His chosen people. They had every benefit and blessing God could bestow and poured out on them. And they kept saying, yeah, but I want something more. And again and again, God puts out his hands and says, but come back to me. I'm willing to accept. And God, I don't know how many people have said it, I don't know where it started, but God is just not the God of second chances. He's the God of the third and the fourth and the 500 and the thousandth chance. And he keeps constantly putting his hand out there and saying, please come back. Because it's about relationship. It's not just about list of do's and don'ts and you'll be right with me. It's about he loves us. And he loved them. And he's saying return. Every time Jeremiah is talking about their destruction, there's a, there's a glimpse in almost every passage and he's saying, but if you'll just turn back. That's why God can look at these early days of all of their sin and their rebellion that we want to stand out in our mind. And he says they were kind and they were loving because he knows our nature. He knows who we are. He knows the struggles that we have. This relationship, um, it's all through Scripture. I, I thought of one of the first things I thought of was we hear messages, heard, everybody's probably heard lots of messages on the prodigal son. But very little is ever mentioned about his other son. The, the prodigal has returned. There's a big party commencing. And the father, representing God, is where? He's outside because there's a relationship that's torn. And it says, literally, he is begging him, please, come back in. Let us celebrate together. It's not the same without you. And there's this pleading, this begging. I've heard people say that God doesn't beg. I think he did all through the Old Testament. He was always saying, please, come back. Please. I love you. Um, one of my biggest, the biggest reminders that I think of is in Revelation chapter 3. And uh, the lukewarm church, the Laodiceans. And we, I don't know how many messages I've heard on, on, on uh, Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. 
and he's asking sinners to come in. And this is not about sinners at all. It's about Christians. It's about the church that has grown aloof, uncaring, immune. And it says Jesus is standing at the door and knocking at the hearts of these Christians saying, I need you back. I want you back. Please return. And his, his promise to them is that if you will just open up the door and I will come in and I will dine with you and you with me. It's the idea of you're letting him in to some place that nobody else is allowed. It's an intimate place. It's a place where I only trust a few close people to sit at my table and eat. There's a sense of intimacy. And another passage right in that same thing says, and he that overcomes. Well, what are, what are these people that are overcoming? Because there's no other thing in there that he talks about that's the issue. It's this idea of, of being away from God, being cold, having your back to God. And he says, he who overcomes, he will sit with me on my throne. I would like to do that. Wouldn't you? Um, I, I've read this before and thought, man, that's going to be a crowded throne. But I don't think enough people have taken the steps to really let Christ completely into their life, to control, to live, to open up things. We, we make this step and we say, yeah, come on to my porch. This is good. That's as far as you need to go. Well, you can step into the foyer area, but no farther. Are we willing to open up the cupboards and the closets and the things that we want to hide from everybody else and say, Come in. Because he wants that kind of intimacy. So the story of, of Jeremiah and the, and the Jews here is not just their story. It's my story. It's personal. It's about me. Because the call of man is about me. It, it's, it's God's call of, of everyone to be repentant. To trust him. And Jesus is still knocking. And at my house, on many occasions, we'll be sitting around doing something, watching TV, playing games, and there'll be a knock at the door. And the kids look at me like, what do we do? They've even asked me that. There's someone knocking. Open the door. But we get like that because Jesus keeps knocking and we don't open the door. And that's what he's looking for. Not just a little peek. He wants you to throw it wide open. Invite him in. The, the fall of man is me. We all struggle. It's each of us. We all struggle with sin. But when he reminds us, hey, this is sin. What's our response? Because he's still... 
standing there knocking. And whatever you got to do, you still got to keep opening the door, opening the door, letting him in. If you got to run or, or fall and crawl, whatever you got to do, open that door and get him in and let him deal with that. And finally, the love for man. Um, this may come as a shock to some of you, but God loves you. Nobody's ever heard that in here, right? Loves you a lot. A whole bunch. Um, and the problem is we don't often live in the abundance of his grace. Because he's constantly holding it out there for us. We don't live in the shadow of the cross. Because when it comes down to it, it's all about him. Jim has said it I don't know how many times in this classroom. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It's always going to be about Jesus. And what we need to stop doing is making about Jesus plus whatever that may be. And I want, this is how God has dealt with me this week, and that's what I'm sharing because I want that intimacy. With, I want it badly. And God has to keep showing me things that are very uncomfortable for me to get it. Um, but that's what God's worked with me on this week. And I wanted to share that with you. That's the story of Jeremiah, Judah. It's the story of us.